but if you are in your final year at uni doing a presentation, if you've just recently joined a, I don't know, British gas or an apprenticeship or whatever, if you can make people laugh in the room, don't be a joker, but if you can add humour to your presentations, that plants the seeds in directors' heads. People don't understand how incorporating humour into your everyday life can have huge benefits if you're not involved in the comedy industry. Just your day-to-day -day life, if you involve humour in your presentations and your speeches, people, I heard this phrase, it's all about the likability factor. Welcome to the How You Say It podcast with myself, Graeme Colgower, a podcast that dives into the depths of understanding communication in all walks of life. It's not just what you say, it's how you say it. Welcome along to the How You Say It podcast with myself, Graeme Colgar, and this week I am joined by Stuart Mitchell, a Scottish comedian, writer and event host. Stuart, how are you? I'm really good. I'm good. I'm in Edinburgh for a Glaswegian, so that's always, and I'm still feeling all right. Well, so. you, you did say when we walked in, we are in the salubrious surroundings of the Glen Eagles townhouse today, so it's awfully posh. It is very posh. It's got wallpaper and everything. I don't it know does. what's going on. <laughs> but it's, I mean, it's great to, great to have you here. Thank you so much for coming along. And um, as this is a podcast about public speaking and communication, I thought it would be a good idea to reach out to a comedian, uh, somebody who's forged a path in comedy in Scotland, which is a fairly well-trodden path, but also a difficult one to get into. And of course, one of the things I, I heard you on a podcast, uh, Some Laugh podcast, which I listened to, and one of the things that really triggered my interest was the work that you do on the commercial side of things, the writing and event hosting. So these are the kind of things that we're looking to talk about today. But first of all, I think it'd be you know, really, really good to understand and, and realise what got you into Scottish comedy or wow. comedy in the first place. Scottish comedy. Well, you want to start the whole psychology of it, <laughs> what, I, what I've been told. So so I was in banking. So I worked for the Clydesdale Bank for a, a, since 2006. And then they sent me on a marketing course. Right. And I noticed there was a stand-up comedy writing course in the same college. So I decided to do that. And I, and I loved it. I really enjoyed it. And I'd also just recently done a speech at my dad's 50th birthday and it got a really good reaction. So I thought, do you know what? There could be something in this in terms yeah. of stand-up comedy. So I went and done the class, done the showcase at the end of the writing class. And then the guy, Charlie Ross, who was doing the class, he said, look, I think you've got something. You should keep this up. And that's how it all, that's a mad journey all started but they say it's psychology I was because I lost a, a parent very mm -hmm. young age when I was seven and they say I wasn't really given a lot of attention or in the spotlight so that's why I turned to stand-up comedy to get that affection really? and feedback so it's very interesting how I got, got into it really well I mean it is I mean as <clears throat> I've said it before I'll say it again I've, I've, I've had a go at stand-up comedy and it's a very very nerve-wracking and and stressful experience for myself a very quiet experience as well when I tried it but there is something magical about being able to stand there telling a story or cracking a joke and getting that instant feedback from people when they're laughing or and, and that must be such a well, it, it would be feel like a drug almost to want to constantly get that. Yeah, and I think when I was doing English at school, I would always stay off sick. I would be sick, make myself stay off sick when I had to do the English presentation because I was a ner nervous wreck. And then going into Stirling Uni and learning to present as part of my economics degree, that's where I sort of started to get a glimmer uh, using humour in my presentations and mm. my work life settings. And I think that's been really successful for me in a private 
career in terms of before I got into comedy mm. in terms of I've always used humour in everything I do and that's really helped me engage with audiences but I've spent a lot of time investing in myself in terms of I've spent time in America I've spent time with late night comedy writers so yeah really spent a lot of time investing in, in what I do as a, as a business and as you say now breaking into different diversifying everyone diversified during COVID uh, and that's what I was doing I was working with chief executives mm-hmm. in order to engage with our audiences during some tough times and, and using humour to get them on board and, and to really brighten them up really yeah <laughs> I mean it, it, I mean, the interesting thing that you've mentioned you said there is the fact that you, you see it as a business yeah. and I think that's something that for a lot of people who watch stand-up comedy a lot of people who enjoy going to the Edinburgh Festival and seeing the Fringe for some people for a lot of the, those performers and for yourself as well this is your livelihood yeah. So if you were self-employed as a mechanic or a or a painter decorator, you would still need to invest in your own business with materials and also learning the trade and the craft, and that's exactly what you've done. When you first started out, is that how you wanted to see it? Did you see it as an opportunity to create a career out of that? Yeah, I think I, I was very disciplined when I started, so I would record every performance, which I still do. Mm. Uh, don't always listen back to it. Uh, I don't really have the time now, but I still record it in case I pick up something uh, that I never said previously and it got a laugh because it's all about the hit rate with me. So, yeah, when I started, I would record, I would go through my notes, I would make sure I tweaked everything and then go back the next night and do the same five minutes with tweaks and then just build up a strong five, a strong 10, 15, 20 and really uh, then decided to move to London and hone my craft down there because I was always advised, look, you can be good up here but get down south and mm-hmm. learn your trade so I spent 18 months in London doing all the clubs and it was like starting again if I'm okay. honest I had to learn to slow down I uh, had to make sure that my it wasn't parochial in terms of talking about iron brew for example mm-hmm. uh, so yes really just invested in personally in my career from the very offset and I progressed very quickly so I went through the open spot circuit very quickly and got in with all the big chains so Jonglers yeah. was a big chain at the start I managed to get in there fairly early uh, and I was getting used and one of very few Scottish acts to do paid work at the comedy store at that time everybody's doing it now geez mm. oh <laughs> uh, so yeah and went to the street went to Australia Middle East America so I've I've got about yeah. uh, but now I'm more diversifying I've got a little one two and a half year old so I don't travel as much I very rarely even uh, excluding London I don't really go down south a lot uh, if I can avoid it, I mean, yeah. When you when you talk about going down and uh, Scotland has a really rich vein of of Scotch comedy. You know, you've got people like Billy Connolly and now Kevin Bridges, and there's loads. And of course, that's probably helped a lot by the fact that we have. I don't know whether it's our culture that we have, where we all like to have a good laugh at the best of times. We're often portrayed as the sort of happy-go-lucky kind of characters and things like that. But we also have the Edinburgh Festival and the Fringe as well that happens every year here. So we almost feel like we we own a little bit of this comedy. So it must be really difficult to have such a, a an audience up in Scotland to then have to try and go down south. And like you've just said there, even just changing the way that you speak, changing your accent, because there'll be certain lines and gags and things like that that the language that you use and the tone and the accent makes it funny yeah. 
So when you try and do that down south at, a, at a, a, an audience that maybe aren't familiar with that, it must take a lot to change and, and have to find, and like you've just said, starting again. Absolutely, and all the industries based down there. So they very rarely you'll get in front of industry up here. Even at the Edinburgh Fringe, the industry are already booked who they're coming to see. So it's very difficult, and although the social media has absolutely flipped on its head and we, mm-hmm. can, we can touch on that, that's where... All my success, 99.9% of my bookings now come from social media. So that shows you that now in this day and age, and I'm only talking about, I think the last three years, particularly post-COVID, that social media is key. You can build your own career. You don't need agents. You can do everything yourself as well. I don't think my agent would be very pleased I said that, <laughs> but, but, but this is really the space we've got. Now, I was just talking to someone at a... A, a social media advertising agency and they were saying that it's all about organic growth now mm-hmm. and social media agencies are really struggling at the moment because all the algorithms have changed no one really knows what's going on so if you can be funny on social media and you can create that left turn I'm all about the gag so people like Kevin Bridges it's hit a minute people like Billy Conley you would you would be not far from a laugh and that's mm-hmm. for me is trimming the fat off everything and then just keeping with the true meat of the gag, and that's what—that's why I think I've been successful. And I'm—I will. I'm in demand for corporate gigs because I tailor every performance to that audience rather than just doing your stock twenty minutes. And it must be really difficult to to, to be so disciplined with yourself on that front. Where if you if you get the laughs and you get you know what's funny and you know that material works it must be really easy to just stand up and you know because in some cases a gig is a job for you guys so you know right i know i could just pull 20 minutes out of this place and and just run through that set and not have to worry about trying to change it or tweak it and you can almost go into autopilot but soon enough the audience will probably start to pick up on that as well i'd imagine so having that discipline what was it about that that was there a point in your career or your whilst going through this journey where you made a conscious decision to say, I'm just going to keep keep ch- constantly moving forward with it. Yeah, I think, well, it's, I think it all goes down to your upbringing. As I said, I lost my mum when I was seven and my dad just used to work his absolute socks off. He was a single parent for a long time. He had his own business in Edinburgh, actually, a franchise, a singer sewing machine mm-hmm. franchise. And just watching him like every day, Monday to Saturday, we had a sort of nanny that came in and looked after us in that time. So I was always brought up with that work ethic. Mm-hmm. And then I was the first in my class to go to uni. I worked with Gordon Brown at the Treasury. I was the only student outside Oxford or Cambridge to, to get one of the 10 placements to work with him. So really? I've really always... And, and then I was diagnosed with severe dyslexia in my first year at uni as well. So I've struggled with that. But that, for me, has been a massive positive for the creative side in mm-hmm. terms of the way my, my brain works. But yeah, I've all, I mean, even now, so I got up at... I'm up at five o'clock, quarter past five, and I'm doing three hours of writing before everyone else in the house is up. So, really? So yeah, apart well, I have an extra hour at the weekend. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not absolutely daft, but <laughs> but no, eh, and that for me, getting up at that time in the morning, eh, going to bed before ten o'clock at night, that's where that three hours in the morning is absolute gold to me mm. in terms of what I produce. Finding that creative space is really, really important. You, you often see a lot of people they'll. And it's it, it's interesting that what you've said there is because I've fallen into that trap before where I've seen people who are maybe very successful and they portray success and they work through the night and they work late and then sometimes they're up early and, and I can't function like that at all. And I sometimes look at that and I think, God, 
to work hard to be a hard worker you have to be working well on after the hours but actually it's finding that right space to be able to sit down and become creative and, and put that information together you went away to america to do a course it's interesting about the course side of things um would would a lot of comedians look to go on these courses or in the comedy circuit or in the some circles in comedy would that almost have a little bit of a nose turn towards it because it's a lot of these people would maybe say i learned naturally you've gone and just studied at it well absolutely and again it goes back to my career so in banking for example and in government you would bring in consultants you would bring in experts so in banking for example you would bring in someone who dealt with credit private finance etc uh, if they were going to buy a new car you would bring a pp or whatever it is, mm -hmm. PP contract purchase agreements or whatever. So you always utilised experts. So for me, investing in a comedy mentor and coach uh, and flying to Vegas and attending the comedy writing convention over there was a absolute... I mean, it, it, you can't really describe how beneficial it was being around a table with people that had lit, written on the late night show for... 15 years were yeah. head writers and and coming away from that week with increased knowledge and it was expensive to fly over it was mostly expensive just to fly over and stay in the hotels the actual sort of course itself wasn't that expensive but that investment was key for me and now i came back with the tools and that's why I'm, I would like to think that's why I'm the longest running panellist on BBC Breaking the News because the work ethic I put into that plus the writing skills that come the producer always knows if they're looking for a laugh or a gag they cut to Stuart and yeah. you can tell in the edit and that's really that's really good and really shows that that investment has paid off What do you think were some or, or one if you can pinpoint one of the biggest lessons that you picked up on whilst you were out there working with those different comedians and getting that mentorship and coaching For me the Americans are the funniest comedy writers You watch any American sitcom you look what they've done with The Office yeah. You look what they've done with Ghosts as well. Uh -huh. Shows like that that they take and they put an American spin on it and the Simpsons, how many writers has The Simpsons got? 30 writers maybe around a table? Yeah. How many do we have up here? Maybe you're lucky if it's two. So they really know how to write comedy. They invest in comedy. And over there it's all about, they're, they're looking for shows to break up the adverts. Right, as <laughs> of well. course, yeah. That's yeah. what it's all about. But these these shows are, are top class and, and the way they write and, and they take pride. I'm not saying we don't take pride, but we've got some great sitcoms uh, in the UK and we have in the past, but I think we've become complacent and the Americans have really moved on. I think we've lost that investment over here. And even recently, Lee Mack wrote an article about how the sitcom was dying mm. in terms of not many sitcoms have been commissioned in the no. UK at all. Uh, so I think I think that's a real trick that we're missing. You've mentioned breaking the news. You're the longest running or longest serving panellist on that, the Scottish BBC Radio Scotland uh, panel comedy show. How stressful an environment is that being in an environment in a in a studio with other panelists and other comedians, knowing that you can't be quiet for too long. You've <laughs> got to try and get a gag out there as quickly as possible. And then, of course, when you put a gag out, you've got to hope that it lands and becomes a, a funny well, one. Well, now when I'm doing it, I'm buzzing because I know I've got better in my head. The percentage of the hit rate is higher, so I know that eighty-five percent of what's on that page I'm prepared for, and it's going to hit. And yes, some does land. I would say 
always, I, I, if you don't mind me saying, I always remember hearing an interview with one of my heroes, Brett the Hitman Hart, the wrestler. I don't right. know if you've heard of him. <laughs> yeah. And what he used to do was, uh, he used to wrestle with a guy, Ric Flair, who we all know. And Ric Flair would do the same moves every single night. And Bret Hart would go on tour with the wrestling and he would test new stuff. And he wouldn't do as well as Ric Flair, but he would be testing and he'd bring it all together for WrestleMania or he would bring it all together for a big event and boom, you get the match of your life. And we're breaking the news. I'll be testing stuff before that recording. I'll be putting the effort in and then come recording day, I'm absolutely prepped. I know what I'm going to say. Uh, and yeah, the hit rate is always very high and it, what frustrates me is when people do turn up and they haven't done the prep work. And that, to me, uh, really annoys me in terms of they're almost disrespecting the show and the other comedians that are on there that are prepared. But, I mean, we're talking a very few handful and everyone's got other things on. But I think to turn up not being prepared for something like that is, is criminal. I mean, preparation plays a huge part. And I think it's something particularly for really, really good speakers, good event hosts, good comedians they make it look effortless. Mm -hmm. And for a lot of people, it might look like someone's just able to walk on a stage and deliver a few lines and get the place rolling around on the floor. But it's very, very difficult to comprehend just how much work and practice and effort goes into that. And I suppose from the, the panelist point of view, it's a show that everybody's involved in. So you're almost as a team of people to try and make that show as good as possible. Because mm -hmm. if that show becomes a really good show, everybody shines in it. So it could just take one person not to put that little bit of work and effort in that could drag the other people down in there as well. From a preparation point of view for a panel show, are we? I don't want to sort of pull the curtain back too much, but you do get, not scripts, but you get sort of the information on what the topics are going to be, so it gives you time to prepare and, and create a, a, a few jokes around that. Aye, it does, but I think the actual, it's not, I, as you say, it's not a script, it's a pointer of what's been in the news that week. Yeah. And to be honest, if you're across the news, you should really know that yeah, anyway. So that's that's what it gives you in terms of it just really confirms the stories that are going to be on the show that particular week. But bearing in mind, you get that brief 24 hours before the so recording. So that's, that's, that's as far yeah, back, yeah. Yeah, so you get it 24 hours. Now, sometimes it comes through at 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and you're recording, your call time's 12 of noon the mm -hmm. next day. So the time you actually go through the beef, write stuff, then get up the next day. But again, I, I don't I don't know if many will go up at five in the morning, but, but that's why I'm always so prepped, because I always put the time in. And because of my dyslexia as well, I spend a lot of time not memorising what I'm going to say, but really reading through the pages in terms of getting that flow, getting the structure of the gag, getting the timing of the gag right. Uh, so that it lands because you've got to really know what you're going to say and the timing of the gag is is really really important it almost sounds and again i'm, I'm referencing back to the the some laugh podcast that i've listened to so many so many different comedians and it almost sounds like there's a you know formulaic process that you can go through in comedy in a sense where i've heard people saying that you know you get through your first 20 open spots and if, if you put the work in and you reflect, you will get better. It's almost like uh, if you have 
for every five really, really bad gigs, it means you're going to get two or three really, really good ones. And the more gigs that you do, the more that compounding sort of formula will keep going. And eventually you'll be honing your material so good, learning so much and being able to develop, you will become a good performer in that sense. And then obviously you keep, you talk about the hit rate, the hit rate and you know, it's like you've got, you're, you're able to put it down into percentages to say that 85%. Is that how you look at it when you're st- you're going into comedy as this formula stru- formulaic process that you can do? If if you tick tick tick, do all these things right, then ergo you've got a much better chance. Yeah, for me that is not every comedian. So I w- I, w- I hate this phrase old school because it's it's all original material. But I'm someone that's it's jokes. I yeah. tell jokes. It's it's original jokes that are right topical jokes for the show and others may get away with not doing that and that's their style and they, they perform their comedy in terms of maybe they're better at performing than writing and I'm, mm-hmm. I'm the opposite I would say I'm better at writing than, than performing so you do it's all about the left turn the element of surprise that's all comedy is it's taking someone down a path and taking a left or a right turn they're not expecting and that's all it is and you can look at a page I can look at a page and I'll know that's going to work. Yeah. That's going to work 100%. That tag's going to work. That callback's going to work. And you just get a lot better at that. But but sometimes I'm also, what I'm better at now is, for instance, I had probably my worst death I've ever had at a corporate three weeks ago <laughs> in front of a thousand people at the Double Tree in Glasgow. And literally for 20 minutes, a thousand people looked at me. <laughs> uh, and I think that's because you you then realise that that material is bulletproof, but the circumstances of the room yeah. just weren't there. And that's where you learn just to get through and you know that it's nothing to do with your abilities. It's just the fact that the environment is not great. Uh, the, I remember doing a, a comedy course, actually, with Joe Sutherland um, mm. in Edinburgh. And it's an interesting one because we talk about the audience and understanding and knowing who your audience is. You were talking a little bit about, you've mentioned already about tailoring material and your writing and, and even for the corporate stuff you're doing. But there was also an element of, with the, with the, com, with the com, comedy, what Joe was saying was, sometimes it'll work and sometimes it won't work. Mm. And the, you've got to become thick skinned. And sometimes you can walk out of there going, look, I've used that material three other times and all three times it's absolutely landed and everybody found it funny. I tried it in that place. It didn't work. So what? Move on and just carry on. Mm-hmm. So where's the fine balance then between knowing that maybe that audience didn't appreciate it and then, but another audience will. How in, in comedy do you think about it or do you just know, right, this is good material. I'm just going to crack in. Uh, you normally know within two things. You normally know when you walk into a room if it's going to be tough. So if the lighting's really bad, if there's no stage, if the mic's terrible, if the audience are, there's a massive dance floor between you and the audience, for example. All these things don't work. You need the the audience to be a real unit. You need them to be really brought together as a single unit. So that's always always tough. Stags and hens, and if they've had too much alcohol, and these are all contributing factors of how the gig is going to go. But if, if you go in there and the sound is amazing, the lighting's amazing, et cetera, et cetera, normally everything will go mm-hmm. the way it should do. How quickly do you want to put your audience at ease by making them laugh when you come on a stage? Oh, I'll, I'll say my opening gag within the first three seconds. 
Really? I mean, as soon as you walk on stage, you you say your opening gag to, to reassure them that you're funny. <laughs> and you know straight away as well, within the opening 30 seconds, you know how the gig's going to go. So you'll be thinking in your mind, right, do I drop that bit of material and bring this other bit in? And you'll roughly know, you'll have your bankers in your back pocket as well if things are dipping. Mm -hmm. So there's loads of things you can bring into the mix and you can maybe decide that you're going to talk to someone in the audience. If there's someone who's heckling, do you address it or do you leave it? Do you intervene? If someone's getting served a pizza in the front row, do you mention it or just let it go? So there's <laughs> all these things going through your mind in terms of do's and don'ts. When you work with people on a commercial front, so you're, you're doing a lot of writing for... As, a, as you've mentioned, maybe you do writing for other comedians, mm -hmm. but you also do writing for corporate people to try and create an engagement through humour. Yeah. What are the sort of top concerns people sometimes have when they're saying about, I want to try and create something, but I need to make it funny? You often hear about people saying, oh, what happens if no one laughs? What happens if I forget what I'm going to say? What happens if someone heckles me? What are the common themes that people sometimes come to you with and concerns? And how do you break those down for those people then? Yeah, so there'll be people, for instance, any event, so let's take it, if I'm hosting an event, you'll have a president that will talk, mm -hmm. or you'll have a CEO that will talk, or you'll have a head of whatever that will talk, and normally 80% of the time they'll die in their arse <laughs> in terms of nobody's interested, they're constantly telling people to be quiet, someone's in a second mic going shh, 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 yeah. so... What we try and do in that situation is we reassure the individual that they need to be engaging. You need to address the room. You need an opening line to bring these people on board. Now, if you're CEO, there was a guy at the bank that I worked with and he was head of marketing and he was funny and everybody loved him and everybody liked him, even though he was absolutely murdered at his job. <laughs> and that, and he was he, he was terrible at his job. He'd never reply emails, but he was funny and, he, and he'd done really well and he get in, engagement with the audience. And we see CEOs, for example, so there's, there's two aspects of it. There's writing for other comedians and, and celebrities, which is one aspect, and that's all fine. And people, people will say, oh, do you know what or you used to watch Mock the Week and see somebody do your joke and, and you'd feel a bit, oh, that's my joke. And you'd say, no, because you've been hired. Yeah. It's like, it's delivering whatever service you deliver. And you don't get, do you know what I mean? If you build a conservatory for someone, get bitter because that looks good and I don't get to take <laughs> it with me. So once they've paid the fee, that's theirs. And then on the flip side with the CEOs, as I was saying, all you do is we take what they're going to say and we add a few left turns. It's it's simple. Yeah. You basically address in the room what everybody's thinking. So one of the examples I give was the end of, end of life charity that had VER equipment so that individuals could put this equipment on their head and in hospices they could feel the water in their feet in the sand and they would take them into a room they would the hospice patients would put their feet in a bucket of water or whatever they'd put a var set on and it would play music so just like a virtual reality aye, set as if it? they were on a beach yeah, and it was yeah. very relaxing but a lot of the staff were annoyed recently because the directors of that charity weren't in the office on a Friday. They were all working from home, apparently. Mm -hmm. So I went up and said, that VER equipment is great that you've got. You put it in your head and you, you get to see the directors in the office on a Friday. <laughs> uh, and it's those sort of things that build a real connection with your audiences because I think CEOs, they, they sort of forget that sometimes being a bit self-deprecating and letting people in 
Yeah. I'm not saying share everything. You've got to have a bit of authority and if you're leading a company, but sometimes when you let people in, it just shows that you're human. Yeah, yeah. And then instantly that connection you build. So if you go up and you say oh, an opening line, either self-deprecating towards yourself or you address the environment, the room you're in or the event you're in or, or what's a big thing for me is the menu. Mm-hmm. So it looks in the moment. If I know what they're eating before he goes on and I write a gag about the lasagna or whatever, then it looks as if he's done that off the cuff and they think, geez, oh, we're turning it. We're going to listen to this guy. Yeah. And that, for me, the Americans are across this. The amount of CEOs in America that have got comedy coaches that work with their comms teams and their communication teams to punch up their speeches and they go to external events. So if a CEO is speaking externally, then again, you bring someone in. Where's the hotel he's speaking at? What's the conference he's speaking at? Let's get some opening lines for him. Let's filter his presentation with a few left turns, a few gags. The best TED Talks you watch yeah. have got humour in them. That's right, yeah. Uh, or else you just get, you're disengaged. How many, they, so I don't do it now. I used to do wedding speeches as well. And the amount of weddings I've been to where you, the best man speech is just bombed and sometimes it ruins a day because that's a, that's all people talk about and it's it doesn't matter if you're in your final year at uni doing a presentation if you've just recently joined a I don't know British gas and apprenticeship or whatever if you can make people laugh in the room don't be a joker but if you can add humour to your presentations, that plants the seeds in directors' heads. He's a good guy, him. Mm-hmm. If he can make you laugh, he's going to onboard staff, he's going to engage customers and key stakeholders. People don't understand how incorporating humour into your everyday life can have huge benefits if you're not involved in the comedy industry. Just your day-to-day life, if you involve humour in your presentations and your speeches... People, uh, I heard this phrase, it's all about the likability factor. Yeah, yeah. And it's so true. People say to me, I'm likable. Now, that you can't create that, it's just what you are, but you can be more likable, you can give people that likability factor. And it doesn't matter if a chief executive, a lot of chief executives will say to me, but I'm quite doer, I'm quite... And and you're like, but that's good. You've got a dry sense of humour, so let's play in that. And uh, and the amount of... It's funny because they're like... Some CEOs are like comedians where they don't like you to say... You, you're not allowed to say anything that you write for them, or you? Because right. it's almost like a... Uh, especially comics, they don't like that, and that's fair enough. But it's uh, it's interesting. Once they've, once they've seen you... Nobody really dumps me in terms of... Once they see the effect that a bit of humour has in their presentations, they, they're almost... It's funny, they're almost wanting more and more. It's an adrenaline rush because they're getting laughs and they're not used to it. Well, it's like what we talked about, that instant validation. Yep. <clears throat> when you see somebody laughing at something that you said, it's or, mm. uh, you know, the impact that you can have. And I think when it comes to laughter, other than maybe the opposite end where you're maybe making saying something that has a negative impact on somebody, yeah. but laughter is such a great thing. As human beings, we just love it, you know, mm. and we don't laugh enough as adults. It's what they say. How many times do we laugh a day but as a child versus how many times... And one of the, a completely separate topic, one of the things that I remember hearing, I can't remember what podcast it was on, and it was a, a guy said uh, for men's mental health, you should spend time with your friends during the morning. We always meet up as adults in the evening. And he said that when you spend time with your friends during the morning, 
it just instantly takes you back to school when Aye. you because it's the only time you ever saw your friends Aye. in the morning you know at 10 o'clock in the morning what are you normally doing you're normally working yeah. it's when you're at, unless you're at school or uni or anything like that and it just and suddenly you become a little bit giddier you become <laughs> i always think back to like if we've been away on day you know lads trips or if we've been at stag do or something like that the morning after the first night when you're just surrounded by your friends, everything seems to be funnier. Everything aye, seems to aye. be great. I'm not having Raymond Mearns at my house at five in the morning. <laughs> well, I mean, I do want to talk about Raymond Mearns because <laughs> he was a, a guest on the podcast. I think, um, yeah, I mean, uh, the, the if there was a bleep machine, um, <laughs> it would have got a good workout that day. But Raymond's a cracker. And you two have a podcast together, the, the Glasgow Da podcast. Yep. What's that been like? And explain to us what that, that is then between the two of you. Yeah, so we're very different. So I'm very structured in terms of scripted comics. So I know what I'm going to say when I step on the stage. Raymond is very different no. in terms of how... Probably the... I mean, Frankie Boyle, I think, described him as an improvisational genius or improv yeah. genius. And, he, and it's right in terms of he is so good on stage at interacting with the audience. Uh, I've got a lot better at it since I've started hosting. I host some gigs, but he is, there's no one better for me uh, than creating comedy out of nothing, basically. So that's when we decided we've been good mates for a long while. And I said to him, do you know, what about we, we were looking at sketches and characters and I says, what if you were my comedy dad? What mm. if you were my dad and I was the son and you just abused me and you shut me down and we put a bonnet on him and a pair of glasses and it was basically <laughs> just Raymond with a pair of glasses and a bonnet on. So that's what we do. So the Glasgow Dad podcast is basically uh, father and son and we discuss everyday topics right. and that's how it started out. And it's it's been so well received. I think we're nearly up to 90,000 followers on TikTok right? and and we're doing really well on YouTube and we're only in episode six of the podcast and it's flying. So so we've hit something there and, and I think the chemistry with between us on the podcast is really building uh, and it's it's great and he's so knowledgeable about things uh, and it's, yeah, it's going really well. Raymond was great. He talked about, you know, the, the value in being himself and I think if there was yep. one person who probably epitomises that. Yep. You know, he, he didn't change any demeanour in himself before we got started on the, you know, you, it was over Zoom we were chatting, so he was chatting away and I said, ah, let's just get started, right? So we got started and again, nothing changed, there was no change in his voice, no change in his demeanour, just the way he was, but he was funny. What about people that often say, you've mentioned about CEOs, you've mentioned about other comedians and you've talked about Raymond there, with even the contrast between Raymond and yourself. Is it fair to say that some people are just naturally funny or is it a skill? And even it goes back to confidence, I suppose, as well, because some people will say, oh, you know, you're just naturally confident. You get introverts and extroverts, that's understandable. But for a lot of people, they'll just see it as, oh, I'm not like that, right? I'm not as confident as that person there is because that's just a natural thing that they've got. It's not a skill. It's, they're just naturally good at it. Do you see that in comedy or, or can it be taught? Can it be a skill that can be honed in and developed so that when you do become from the the, the less um, confident and funny person to being the guy that can walk into a room and make everybody laugh? Yeah, I think there's only probably a handful of comics like Raymond, like Peter Kay as well, I would say, who's mm -hmm. just naturally funny. You, very, very rarely do you get people like that. I think very, very rarely do you get people like that in comedy. You do get, just because you're funny down the pub with your mates, mm -hmm 
doesn't mean you're going to be funny on stage and you see it happening you'll be sitting backstage at an open mic night <laughs> and someday in the green room will be giving it all this all this all this and then they'll go up stage and they'll bomb hello <laughs> <Nah>. <laughs> but on but on the flip side of that you'll get someone backstage who probably to be fair would be me because i'm very socially awkward who would sit there and say nothing right. and you're thinking to yourself, he's going to die in his arse, he's terrified. Mm. And then he goes out there and he just click instant. He just has a persona on stage that's totally different from off stage yeah. and he blows the roof off. And that's that's more common than someone being really funny off stage and then going on and, and killing it, as they say. When you talk about personas then, and you're, you, you said that word there, where Raymond talks about being himself... Right, and only someone like Raymond Mairns can be themselves and still manage to nail it down. What, what about somebody who maybe needs to have a persona so that when they walk on stage, they can be the polar opposite of the person that's just been sitting there in that back room that's been the quiet, introverted character that suddenly it could be using a, a different accent, it could be putting a wig on, it could be using a prop. Suddenly they change instantly to becoming a completely different person. Do you see that quite a lot? Yeah, so I used props to start with, but it was a safety blanket for me. It was almost like having something there. Uh, So you do see that a lot. I think for me, I'm very... People that I would work with are people that are friends with me that have never saw me and they come and see me being a comedian. They think, God almighty, you were so different. I never expected that. And I think you're sort of 200% more confident on stage than you are off stage. I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say I'm, that's that's probably not right in terms of, con- what I mean is you show yourself as 200% more confident and that comes across on stage. But I do think that there's certain individuals that we've all got a, we've all got a persona, but there's certain individuals that will play like a complete character mm-hmm. on stage. Like, uh, the guy, the, the meet and greet guy, Troy, yeah. is a, so he's a complete character on stage and totally, obviously he's not like that off stage at all. So that's what you see, jo- Ricky, uh, Johnny Vegas, completely yep. different off stage than he is on stage in terms of, <coughs> in terms of that character. So, so there is, We've, I think we've all got a persona yeah. on stage. Uh, we're maybe just lift that 20, 50, 100% in terms of confidence level, energy level. So I don't think, as I said, there's very few people that will just walk on stage and they'll be the same that they are off stage apart from Raymond. <laughs> Can you use things? I've worked with a couple of people about building their confidence up and one of the things we said was look at somebody who portrays what you want to be and what you want to portray you look at somebody on a on a stage with a microphone and you see the way that they are and you can say like look at their mannerisms and look at the way that they do things where that that prop that you need might not have to be a wig or a, a, a something it could just literally be a microphone a stage and some lights and suddenly as soon as you walk from that because I, 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 there's been occasions where I've spoken and particularly some of the comedy that I'd tried to do and I sometimes look back and go it was almost like an outer body experience mm. when you look at that and go that's that just feels so distant from the kind of person that I was before I walked onto that stage to the person I was whilst I was on it how do you manage that or, or is that something that you you work with as well in terms of even like your nerves before you walk on stage to then being on stage and just being instantly in the zone yeah I think I mean it's it's quite I mean it's very simple before you go on stage if you're feeling nervous you take 10 deep breaths through your nose and 10 
deep breaths back through your mouth <laughs> and it calms you down absolutely completely and also keep your shoulders back and stage look towards the back of the room and there are small things that can just if you don't feel confidence in, inside uh, it makes the audience feel feel more confident but but you, you you definitely see people so there's three comics in my 15 years that I've saw at the start of their career and I thought they've got it instantly right. you know straight away uh, if someone's got it or not and what I always advise has been family or friends that have obviously wanted to enter comedy and I've always said to them for me it's only my personal view I think you need to be mentally strong before you become a comedian because I'm I was used to failure in terms of trying to start businesses and, and in banking as well. So I was used to that failure aspect and not taking failure too serious, mm -hmm. but it can ruin people in terms of if you've maybe suffering a wee bit mentally and then you, you go on stage and you get a good gig one night and then you really bomb the next night and then you maybe get to a stage whereas, for instance, one night I would be supporting Stuart Francis and his tour to 1,800 people or Jim Smith to 2,000 people in Aberdeen. And then literally 15 minutes later, you're sitting in your hotel room on your own. Yeah. Or you're driving back after the gig on your own with no radio on. And you're thinking, God, 15 minutes ago I just... <laughs> come off stage to 2,000 people at the music hall in Aberdeen. But you need, and even for me, and I would say I'm extremely mentally strong in terms of uh, built that up. Unfortunately, other family members aren't. Mm. I seem to have missed that. But <laughs> I think, uh, I think, yeah, what's key about it is being, being really strong so you can cope with that. And maybe that's why some comedians struggle with alcohol and then you get in that vicious cycle of, then you're drinking alcohol and taking things to try and make you sleep and that's just that vicious cycle so you really need to be mentally strong uh, to, to do comedy as well and there's been a few there's been a few CEOs well maybe not a few maybe two CEOs I've actually said to them look I can give you the gags but I just don't think presenting is for you really why don't you just get your deputy Mm -hmm. or get your heady media or marketing because it's making you ill. They were just so, was they that just the nerves? That they just were? so nervous. Really? Just so nervous. Mm. And clearly they'd gotten into that position through hard work and results, but no one's perfect. And for them, the 40 standing up in front mm. of an audience was terrifying. Yeah. And you could see it and you're thinking, Christ almighty, no gags are going to get you out of this. You need to go away and decide one if you're going to try and address that and that that's a bigger professional than me if it's yeah, I don't know sometimes it's maybe the case that they just can you ever build someone up that's in that position that's so low in confidence and doing one particular skill i.e. presenting you're maybe just better look accepting that it's no for you and getting a deputy in to do your presenting and you do the the work in the background and sometimes and I'm and I'm not going to take somebody's fees or money or whatever it, you're better just be honest and and one of them was a wee bit funny but the other one <laughs> uh, the female actually uh, was was quite honest and says do you know what it's, no one else in the organization would have the the confidence or the 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 brass neck to tell me that Right, so they actually so appreciated your honesty. Crapping herself to say, I mean, you're not going to turn into the CEO and say, sit down, Henry, can I talk? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Right. I, I, it, it, there's, the resilience part of that yeah. is huge, isn't it? And yeah. 
I think when you go into it, you have to know that there are going to be ups and downs because a lot of people, a, a, a piece of advice a friend of mine once gave another friend, he said, uh, don't put your name in your business. Hmm. And he said, because if you put your name in your business and your business fails, there's an automatic association hmm. with your name and the failure associated with it. And I think that's easy to do when you're coming up with a name for a business. You can call it whatever you want. If it's comedy, it's your name that's on the posters. It's your name that's outside the door. It's your name. It's you that people are coming to go and see. So if you do flop a little bit or it's not that great, that dealing with that must be very, very, very difficult. And what, what really frustrates me, and it's probably because I take it so serious, if I'm hosting a corporate event or I'm, I'm at an event, for example, and they're, they're doing an auction or they're fundraising, and then a representative for that charity will oh. go up and thank the audience. And they're, they're shaking and they're holding a bit of paper and they're stuttering and they're mumbling. People start to talk up to the toilet and I think to myself, why, one, would you put yourself through that? And two, not just get somebody that's confident and really uh, capable of delivering a good, engaging speech for the charity why put someone through that and it's no fair in them no that constant development stage i mean there are people who maybe think they are mm. i've seen that quite a lot of the time when you maybe find somebody who who's spoken a lot and one of the big things I, I talk to other people about is just because you speak a lot doesn't mean you're actually any good at it mm. and i remember I've, I've been to two toastmaster meetings and one of the ones that really opened my eyes was they had an A or A counter or an um counter, they called it. And it was, a, it was a lady who was in charge of it. And she had a physical button that would buzz any time somebody who was speaking went A eh, um, or they used a bridging word. And it was very off-putting. And the point of the matter was they're saying that it sounds a lot harsher. I mean, after this poor guy, who I think he got like 27 A's in a seven-minute speech, and afterwards, the woman went over and gave him a hug afterwards, and they were friends. But it, it was harsh at the time because it has to be, you have to be able to know when you're making these tiny little mistakes. You talk about you, you record yourself back so you can hear these wee things. But it's incredible how many people will stand on a stage with a microphone who've maybe had no development and not invested any time in their own communication development because they think... I'm, I can do this, I, I'm confident I can speak, and they'll speak in this, um, as and everything like that. When I'm a little bit pickier with that, because with what I do, I, I pick up on it instantly. Body language is another thing. You'll be the same. I remember uh, Joe Sutherland in that comedy thing talked about comedians that play with the, the mic and they play with the cord, or when they start to walk and the cord starts to get... Aye. All these tiny little things can play a huge part in making the audience feel uncomfortable. Aye. And, and, you've, if, aye. and you've seen recently in news that they're playing with other things as well that's got them in a lot of trouble. <laughs> but, but I think, no, you're right. It's those little ticks yeah. that the audience see if you're constantly sort of playing with the microphone or, or jiggling the cable or whatever, then it, it's off it's off putting. It's off putting for the audience. But I think where my where my key skill niche is is, and no disrespect, I don't work with CEOs that can't present, mm -hmm. right? I work with CEOs that are looking to have left turns in their speech to incorporate humour. So most of the CEOs I work with, like comedians, mm -hmm. 
they know how to write, they know how to write a speech. What they're no good at is gags. Making it funny. And making it funny. And I, I'm a puncher-upper. Yeah. That's yeah. basically what I am. And corporate is comedy consultant. There you go. I mean, how, how difficult is that to sell yourself? Is it, is it a market that's out there? I mean, it, it, it's an, it's funny when you meet an ind- somebody in an industry that you never, ever think of. I'm once, in another life, I was delivering... Um, a, a health and safety training mm-hmm. course for a company in Glenrothes in Fife and I said what do you guys do and he said you know the little metal frames that you put the nozzle from the the pump for the from your petrol the, for the petrol station? he says make them for the whole of Britain mm-hmm. and it was just like pff, you know the, that tiny little thing that's what they do and then you never even think that's a need or requirement mm-hmm. of course but it is but then you meet somebody like yourself that's saying yeah I basically work with chief executives or senior ranking people to make them Make a few, make, put a bit of gags in their in their thing. Right. Is is it been a difficult thing to promote yourself, put yourself out there, get that business coming in? It is because I think, I mean, it's it's a lot better now. It's been difficult because they don't. It's like the iPhone in it. When the iPhone came out, you didn't <coughs> you didn't really realise you needed it until yeah. you had it in your hand. And and I think once I show them and they see the impact themselves, then that's when you start getting the repeat work. So you might just have a few clients that you work with, but it is on a repeat basis. Okay. And if you can even even if you can add one every two to three months, then it's just a rolling thing. But but, <coughs> but it's part in it's partly Stuart Mitchell incorporated in terms of that's just that's a string in my bow yeah, and yeah. I've got obviously the radio and the podcast and breaking the news and then I'm gigging myself in the circuit and I'm hosting my own gigging bigger in the town that I stay in and so you're doing all these different things uh, and then obviously in TikTok and creating content for that and even been involved in advertising so been asked if you can create funny ads like what was the one Dubai uh, Emirates were doing flights and it was uh, Dubai or not Dubai that is a question like I play on Dubai and they loved it and you're thinking, God, how much are you paying someone else for that? Do you know? Uh, when you have you ever had a situation where someone's come to you and said, "I don't need you anymore. I'm funny now." No, I've never. Had, I've actually never had that. Aye. I've never had that. I've had. Uh, I've worked with comedians in terms of. I wouldn't like to say paid mentorships because I, I I wouldn't take money off people. And I, and I, don't say that. There'll be loads of comics contacting me. But, <laughs> but what I mean is, I've had I've had comics say, "Do you know what? I sort of get it now. Aye. I get it now." And there's been open spots that have come through, and they're they're doing well now. And they've said, "I've I've get it. It's it's a formula. It's it's a listing process. It's a left turn element of surprise." And I think we overthink it too much. Mm. All we're looking for is a laugh. We're looking for a left turn. That's yeah. it. It's no. It, I say it's no hard. It is hard until you you train that comedy muscle, yeah. and it gets easier like everything else. And that's it. It, it comes back to that yeah. working on a skill to grow yeah. it and develop it, not just relying on just being being yeah. the funny guy in the pub like I thought I was yeah. for a while. Going on to the hosting side, what makes a good host? What do you think makes a good host when it comes to hosting corporate gigs or hosting events? Well, I think in this day and age, quite rightly, you need to be inclusive. Yep. So you can't piss anyone off. You need to be accessible. You can't be doing material that's inappropriate, that will be offensive. I think, and I know people will be listening to this thinking, well, that's obvious, but you want to see some 
after dinners. I mean, how they're still in the circuit is beyond me, but anyway, that's another story. Yeah. But I think you need to be inclusive, you need to be non-offensive. You need to tailor your set to the organisation as well. Mm-hmm. A lot of comics will say, nah, you just do your set, just do your set. But if you want to be really accommodating, accommodating, uh, you take, for instance, the presentation from during the day and you make light of it, you find out what everybody's views are in certain things in the organisation. If the MD's up for a bit of a laugh, then you do a bit in him. And I think for me, you need to be professional, you need to turn up in time, you need to do your time, you need to no drink alcohol before you've been on, have a wine afterwards or whatever. You have to be there early so the event hosts as they stressing out, do your sound check be smart, presentable, no moan, the amount of people that you will book you and they'll say, oh, we had another such and such the previous year and they were moaning because we were overrunning by five minutes and you're like, Jesus Christ, they're paying you a great fee, you're, yeah. you're, you're basically theirs for the night, you know? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so, yeah, I think you definitely need to be accessible, inclusive and just no offend anybody and do a good job because sometimes the people in the room, you're a hindrance to their night. Mm. you're destructing their networking and you need to remember that as well so and they know that the organisers know that sometimes as well and some will come it's went all right, but people have been talking all the way through it and there's nothing you can do with that and they've said look you were great but really apologise for the people at the back and and that's fine you don't get cut don't lose folk lost or heed it and you're like why just do your thing Uh, at what point would you engage in a situation if you're hosting or because i mean from a hosting's perspective yeah you're kind of trying to it's not really about you it's about bringing it all together but if you're trying to host and Mm. and you've mentioned it already there's sometimes nothing that makes you more uncomfortable when people start you know order best of order please guys when somebody else is trying to speak i remember um at a, at a dinner and there was a after dinner speaker there was a comedian actually going through his set and a table had just completely switched off mm-hmm. the set was wrong for the room if i'm being honest i found the set very funny it was a very uh, niche scottish football kind of jokey it was making very good jokes about it. but another table a guys who had no inclination towards football whatsoever <laughs> but the guy kind of just and it must have been a stock line that he used um he said oh where did you learn to whisper a fucking helicopter right and it didn't land at all Mm. but what it did do is it made everybody else feel completely uncomfortable there was no laughter from the audience to the guy who the the the, the speaker which then almost made him angry and it felt like it, it, it basically we felt the rest of the evening completely uncomfortable with the situation because it felt like we'd like he was angry at us for being a rubbish audience which, in fairness, in his eyes, we probably were. Yeah. But at the same time, he made that decision to engage instead of ignoring it, whereas if he had ignored it, would it have made the evening any worse or any better? At what stage, when you're in that situation as a host, or how could somebody deal with that better than he did? Yeah, so I think I think if you're on stage and people are chattering away at the front or whatever, and it's only you that can hear them, you just let it be. Don't yeah. get involved. Uh, if you hear sort of in the middle of the room and it's just, uh, I always feel just like shh, shh, shh like yeah. that. Just very sort of short, sharp, free shh, shh. Yeah. That normally settles them down. And then if it's still going on, 
sometimes it will self-police itself mm -hmm. but if it doesn't I normally address it and just say look this, the bar's open outside do you want to go out yeah. just have a drink talk with your pals and we can have enjoy the comedy yeah and yeah. really friendly like that way and and it, and it works it, it goes if they turn nasty uh, then it just really looks bad in them yeah. I think there's no point and then you never want to, especially at a corporate, comedy club's a bit different, but at a corporate you never want to go in hard, uh, unless it's a very male-dominated audience yeah. and you feel you could get away with it, then fair enough. Especially if the guy's been a bit of a knob and the yeah. audience think he's a knob, <laughs> yeah, yeah. then that'll work. Uh, but I think, first of all, if it's just a bit of chatter, ignore it. If it builds up, do the shh, shh, shh. And then if it's just a one table, you just sort of... Yeah. politely address look the bar's still open why don't you go and have a drink yeah, yeah. I mean, and go it, catch up with your pals or whatever you know it's amazing how quickly that can de-escalate something that everybody would be worried so worried about I remember hearing a, a study that was done about people that are running late for a, a course Aye. and what they did was they deliberately sent somebody into a course 10 minutes late and then they asked everybody who was on the course did anyone arrive late and everyone went I can't, can't really remember and uh, when you're standing up there on the stage or you're hosting, the one thing you're most worried about is if whams of people start to become disruptive and mm -hmm. maybe you're worried about having to do that sh sh or try and ask people to be quiet or even that uncomfortable. I mean, even just now thinking about it, Aye. how uncomfortable you say, guys, look, the bar's open next door. Why don't you go through there if you want to have a chat? At the time, you'll say it. And there's probably an hour, two hours later, most people won't have, won't have even picked up or recognised it, but in your mind, it's it's in, like built up and, and built up. And Yeah, and it's fair to say, audiences have changed. Yeah. I would say in the past, I hate to say that post-COVID, it's done to death, but genuinely, since we've all opened up again, audiences have changed. Their attention span is less. Yeah, They're on their phones. They talk. Sometimes they take phone calls. They... It's a bit different at corporate, but at comedy clubs, when they buy a ticket now at a comedy club, some, some people think they're entitled to act the way they want. Yeah. It is incredible. It's incredible to witness in terms of behaviour. Now, I'm only talking to the minority, but even then, it only takes a minority to disrupt a room. And it just, I mean, sometimes I don't like to get cynical, but people would say in society. And then also, because people are so stressed at their work, when they go out and they have a drink, they have a drink mm. and they drink too much. And that's what you see at corporates. You see people just letting their hair down but too much and just getting steaming right. and cause the meal's not a half eight, but then it's too late. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so you've got to sort of learn to deal with that. And there has been times where you've sort of had a chat with somebody in the room to say, look, that guy in table two is absolutely his face. Somebody's going to just want to go up and take him out of the room yeah. in a nice manner. And you always need to be on the ball to notice these sort of so things. So when you're sitting there at this corporate gig, maybe you're the speaker, maybe you're the event host or the MC for the evening, and you're sat at the top table perhaps, and or you're at the table at the side and there's a stage with a lectern, etc., a prize giving, an award ceremony, whatever it is, are you constantly just on the lookout, eyes always on the go to find out what's going on and... and even pick up on anything that you could you could use absolutely or also yeah. avoid as well Aye. so you so you so my once i'm booked sorry a week i always if i'm booked for a corporate on a thursday or a friday or a saturday that week is booked out for mm. that corporate 
So like the Monday or the Tuesday, I'll be doing writing for the corporate and things like that. But when you walk in the room, you're always eyeballing everyone to see, right, who's, what's the situation here? How many, what's the ratio of male to female or, or vice versa and et cetera. So you're always on it. What's the lighting like? What's these stupid things? What do they look like they've got on the table or whatever? Like just looking at everything that's around them that people are taking in. What's maybe happened that night? Has something happened where... I don't know, the fire alarms went off or one of the bulbs blew or just silly wee things that you can address yeah. on the night. So you're always sort of on it. it the, what you're talking about there is blocking your week out. I think one of the things that a lot of people forget when they see prices and they, they get a price for a, a gig or somebody coming in and they see it as the night or the day or the event, what they don't see is the work that goes in behind that. You know, yeah. the, the so... How much of that do you incorporate in when you're pricing? Are you saying, is it a 50-50 split? Are you saying, right, well, I'll tell you what, it's going to be f four hours or three hours on a Saturday night, but for that three hours, I'm going to have to do another six hours of writing and material and preparation. So that's it. That's the sort of price incorporation there. Yeah, and it's all a briefing call as well. So you'll have a briefing call with the client. Very, I, But I'm very different in terms of I use a briefing call and I do. I don't know what others do. A lot of people will, fair enough, they'll just do their set, they'll do their 20 minutes. It doesn't matter if you're in a comedy club or a corporate, you get their 20 minutes. Whereas I really sit and tailor the material, if the client wants that, mm -hmm. to the day and to the companies and who's in the room, what companies are in the room, etc. So that's where, when you get me, you get that whole package. Fantastic. You've also got a, a BBC Radio 4 show coming out, Stuart Mitchell, Cost of Living. What can we look forward to with that then? Yeah, so that's out, when's that? God, Sunday the 25th, so a week in Sunday, not long. Yeah, that's very cool. So that's, all, that's my life story from, uh, I guess, a lot of, so I had a lot of tragedy in my life, which obviously tragedy makes the best humour. So it's an autobiography of my whole life story. So it's about losing my mum when I was seven and then being grown up with single parent, my dad and his singer sewing machine shop and then moving first in my family to go to uni and go on to the treasury and go into banking and giving the banking up because I thought it was unethical and moving into the charity sector and comedy and so it's a whole journey of my whole life across six wow. episodes so so yeah I've pitched that way back about a year ago and then it got commissioned one of the first well it was it was the first BBC Scotland production to get commissioned for Radio 4 for oh, many, yeah. many years. So they were really yeah. pleased and not really and the team behind Breaking the News as well. So they've been they've been great. So it's amazing to have been working with them. So what goes into that show? Is this you writing the show? Oh. Well I mean it's your life so you'll know it. But I mean to write it and then is it just you or are there characters that are coming yeah. in? So it's all it's me that's in it's me that's written and performed the show in terms of I play I don't play characters but I act out my father and yeah. things in the show but but again that was all I wrote that in two weeks so the sixth part I, I took two weeks and, and put the show together and then I road tested it during the Edinburgh Fringe right. so for, what was that 26 nights in Edinburgh I road tested it every night which was difficult because some of it never worked mm -hmm. uh, at the start but then by the end of Edinburgh I had a, a show that I knew worked and then I recorded it in front of a live audience and I did my American thing as well I made sure that I, BBC agreed that I'd done two recordings so I'd done two of the same recordings and took the best bits of both nights really yeah mm -hmm. which was a and I, I wasn't an arse about it I just that was the that was the stipulations about mm -hmm. doing my show I wanted two recordings of the exact same material and take the best bits of both nights 
Fantastic. And I suppose, like you said, is that it might have been difficult at the time going through Edinburgh, and, and, and but it's that pro, it goes back to that process again, isn't yeah. it? It's it's doing it, reflecting, changing, and then trying it again, and and, and making those different changes. It's, yeah. it, and, and as you've said, it might have been tough, and that that res- having that resilience has come brought you through, and now you have that uh, that out, show at the end. Out with a new material night, going up on stage and doing something that you've not prepared for terrifies me and it might not terrify Raymond he's very good <laughs> improvisation but for me I need to be prepped there's no way I'm standing on stage for a Radio 4 show doing things that I've not tested no, of course now I, I maybe haven't given you the preparation here but I do that deliberately for our guests where I ask them what are their fundamentals of communication from the, from the industries or background or lives that they've had so Stuart what would you say key fundamentals when it comes to communicating in, in, in all the areas that you've worked in I think for me, it's smiling to people. Absolutely. You need to smile to someone when you meet them. A firm handshake for me as well is very important. I know it's no, you've not even spoke yet, have you? No. But it's a smile, it's a handshake, and it's putting someone at ease. And you, we all know instantly you're either going to like someone or you're not, I think. So the, hand sh- the smiling, the handshake, and then always repeating for a second time what you've said to make sure someone understands what you're telling them or what instructions they need to take forward. I think that's really key. And always following and checking that they understand completely Mm -hmm. what you're saying. Uh, That's probably in my my most important communication strategies that I've taken uh, from my years, God, because I've worked across the private, public and charity sector, so... Brilliant. Well, how can people who are listening find out more about you? How can they, when, well, you've already mentioned about your cost of living, the, the new show. What about the 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 Glasgow the Glasgow Da podcast or social media? How can people find you? Yeah, so Stuart Mitchell Comedy on TikTok. TikTok's the biggest platform for me. You'll find everything in Glasgow Da on TikTok as well. And they've got links through to everything we're doing in terms of live shows, etc. So just Google Stuart Mitchell Comedy and you'll, you'll find me some way. Brilliant. Well, listen, thank you so much for that. Really, really enjoyed that conversation. We'll probably sit here for another couple of hours and chat, <laughs> but I think we're going to get chucked out of this fancy room very soon. Stuart, thank you very much. Thank you. Cheers. Cheers.